0: Furthermore, the equation e is equal to m c squared. And uh, here's the discovery. I'm going to make them laugh again. Uh.
1: Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Henkel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. So welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I am your host, Isaiah Henkel with Cheeky Scientist. We have our team members on with us. Lisa, Mary, and Jeanette, I will bring them on later. I wanna say hello to all of you, and if you are a PhD looking for your first or next job in industry, or just learning, uh, looking to learn business acumen, looking to learn advanced business concepts, if you're an international PhD looking to get a visa or a green card, we have you covered. You have come to the right place. Today's show is on company culture and how PhDs can show employers that they are the right fit for the company culture. Maybe you're uploading resumes right now and not hearing anything back. Maybe you're trying to network, but you find it painful. Maybe getting a job in industry is a complete black box for you. You see other people getting hired, but you're not making any progress. If so, you're in the right place. Maybe you are in industry, but you're not happy. Maybe you're not being paid what you're worth. What we want you to do is remember your value as a PhD and start applying the strategies we're gonna talk about here to get hired, not just hired, but to thrive in industry and we're going to cover a lot of different topics today. I'm very excited. We have multiple guests on, so I'm going to get started here. And the first thing I want to show you is this article. So this is our job search tips section. This is, some, this is a place where I spend a couple of minutes just talking about something very relevant, very topical, and I fit it into your job search and why it matters. This is a great article. If you have been thinking for a while, something is wrong with academia, you probably, like me, thought, first, something's wrong with me. I'm not successful enough. I'm not doing things right. You felt like maybe you made a mistake, maybe you're not smart enough, maybe you just don't understand it. How come other people are getting published, or how come you know everybody's talking about getting into professorships, but I can't seem to work my way into a professorship? I've been stuck in this postdoc, or I've been chasing postdocs, or I'm a, in, you know I'm a PhD student and I'm seeing how my PI lives, and I don't want to do what he or she does. If that's you, that's okay. The problem's not you; it's academia. In this article it's a great article it's from the washington post why why do i love that because i love how what's been going on in academia how the system is broken is getting out there into the public more it's not just being published in nature science right it's starting to percolate into the general ether of society and their understanding that hey this is really weird this is this is not a great situation academia doesn't just have an academic culture it's gone beyond that to becoming a cult, right? So obviously the, the word cult is in the word culture. What does it mean? It means, for example, that it's a closed system, right? Open communication with the outside world has either ceased or gone down. You've probably noticed this in academia, like you feel very isolated, very alone. There's a reason they call it the ivory tower. Things go on that would not be acceptable anywhere else. In a company, you would have a human resources department or you'd be held accountable by the government for certain behaviors, but in academia, It's really not the case and it hasn't been talked about for a long time Um, cheap labor practices right that's something that defines the cult too you have a lot of people working for a third or fourth of what they're worth i was just giving a talk in alabama and a phd stipend was about thirteen thousand dollars that is ridiculous a lot of postdocs make about thirty thousand dollars a year after all of that time after becoming a a doctor this is not the way things are supposed to be and academia protects its cult, right? There's a difference between a cult and a culture. So a culture is just a way of doing things, usually to increase performance and to increase morale. A cult is when a culture goes bad. It becomes a closed system. Uh, Negative things are kept quiet, they're avoided. Uh, Increased isolation occurs. Uh, Things like, uh, this needs to happen so that again, things like cheap labor, uh, people being uh, verbally abused, Uh, Certain threats and practices aren't uh, they're protected and this is why uh, This is why academia has become a cult and why things feel and are uh, Very negative for a lot of PhDs a lot of postdocs you feel it You know what I'm talking about you've been told you've been brainwashed because that's another thing that cults do You've been brainwashed into thinking that this is normal. This is just me paying my dues Oh, I have to do another postdoc or oh, I'm getting paid little or oh I can't believe my PI said that to me, but I guess it's normal because this is just something that's difficult to do. It's not normal, it's something that happens in cults. Check out this article, it's, it breaks down what these practices are, how a culture can go bad and turn into a cult. And that's something that I wanted to talk about. So if you are feeling like something is off in academia, if you've been putting up with a, with behaviors that you would never put up with outside of academia, don't just let it continue, right? Don't allow yourself to get isolated. Speak up, communicate, keep records of what's going on. Take your career and your, your professional uh, trajectory into your own hands. That's the biggest thing that you can do. Realize, and this is true for all cults, they actually have very little power. Once a cult member decides that I'm no longer going to accept this kind of behavior, I'm no longer going to uh, keep drinking the Kool-Aid everything disappears Once you realize that you have your own free will to make the choices that you want in your career, the cult has no power over you. Cults stay in power because they make you think that you don't have a choice. You have to stay on this path towards a professorship, even though professorships are almost extinct. You have to keep doing what your PI says because it's the only way you can get a job anywhere. You need your letter of recommendation from your PI or your career is over. They make you think you don't have a choice. They make you feel like you don't have free will, you do, okay? So if you have been feeling that way, realize that a simple decision, that you are in control of your career, that you don't have to say yes, you don't have to do what you're told, you don't have to be isolated, you can expose what's happening, the cult doesn't have power over you anymore. All right, so we're gonna move forward from that. I'm gonna show you, once again, our show-up bonus. If you're just joining us, five ways PhDs can determine a company's culture. This is crucial. When you go to an interview, When you start networking, you have an informational interview. What they're gonna be looking at is not your technical skills. They're not gonna clear the desk and say, okay, do a Western blot for me. Create a knockout mouse, okay? Program an entire app for me. They're not gonna do that. Instead, they're gonna ask you questions to see how you come off. Can you work with a team, right? Can you get results, but also show that you care about other people? These things determine a company's culture. And a company's culture is not just how people feel, morale, the kind of results they get, but it's also the processes, the operating systems. Do people call each other between offices or do they do they message each other? Like we use Skype at Cheeky Scientist, for example, if something needs to be done sooner rather than later, we communicate in Skype Messenger. That's just an example. That's a part of our company culture, right? We also use a um, project management software called Monday. Lots of different project management softwares out there, but the software, the processes that you use make up your company culture. How? You dress makes up your company culture when people can show up can you show up whenever is there a certain time everybody shows up how collaborative are the meetings how, how what kind of KPIs right what kind of metrics are kept all of this is company culture and it's what we're gonna be talking about today you need to understand it first before you start getting evaluated on it so get this show up bonus go to cheekyscientist.com slash show up bonus company culture and you can get this for free. I do want to mention a great article that we recently published. This is by Arunadoy Sur. Arunadoy Sur is one of our program leaders for our international PhD community. It's one of our advanced programs. This is a great article, six best articles about the life, life science industry trends for your job search. Arunadoy writes about industry trends. Industry trends matter for a variety of reasons. Right? If companies are merging, if new products are coming out, this will expose opportunities where new jobs are going to be opened up. Right, If you're an international PhD, it, you can find out through these trends which companies are more willing to hire an international PhD versus those who are not. And this article goes into a variety of topics and it links up to six other articles, which you're seeing here, that are our top six articles on industry trends. So make sure you go to this, you can go to cheekyscientist.com slash blog look at all all of our blog articles, including our trending articles. This specific article is cheekyscientist.com, life science, industry trends for your job search. So we're gonna move forward now and I'm gonna bring on Jeanette McConnell. Jeanette's gonna take us through the show me the data section. We have a lot of great data to go through. Uh, Two figures in particular that I really, really like and that are gonna spark a very interesting discussion here. So let me take off the spotlight here and see if we can bring Jeanette on. How are you, Jeanette?
2: Hi, Isaiah. I'm great.
1: Good to see you on. And I want to make sure that everybody's seeing. So when I'm talking, if you're seeing me and Jeanette talks, if you saw her, can you type in yes and yes in the chat box, please? you're One of our members, that'll help. All right, great. just want to make sure that you can actually see us. And we're showing on the screen here, the Leader's Guide to Corporate Culture. The Leader's Guide to Corporate Col- Culture. This is a Harvard Business Review article with some great data in it. enlarge my screen here just a little bit so we can see it even better so this first figure for those of you listening by audio either live or on our podcast and by the way you can get all of the audio and re-listen to this anytime on itunes if you just search cheeky scientist radio the entire audio we have our own podcast you can find us there you can also find us on spotify and you can find us on soundcloud so what we're looking at here is an axis, there's an x and a y-axis, but it's crossed like a T. And at the top, we have how people respond to change. And there's a colon, it says flexibility. And then at the bottom of that, on the other end of the, the graph, is stability. All right, so flexibility versus stability, that's on the y-axis. On the x-axis, we have how people interact. Independence on the, the far left, interdependence on the far right. So we're just making two comparisons here, flexibility versus stability independence versus interdependence in terms of a company culture. And then there's a lot of dots on different parts of this graph on the four quadrants, uh, such as learning, purpose, caring, enjoyment, results, authority, safety, order, that fall into a different quadrant, right? For example, uh, in the quadrant that's high for interdependence and flexibility, there's a dot for purpose, and it says 9%, right? There's uh, very high for interdependence, somewhat high for flexibility, higher than stability anyway, is caring at 63%. So we'll go through some of these percentages. And Jeanette, maybe you can help us understand what do these percentages mean? How is the experiment set up?
2: Yeah, of course. So in this study, the authors looked at, you know, different cultures for organizations. And they found that a culture can really be defined by how people respond and how they interact with these two concepts, these concepts of how do people respond to change and how do they interact with each other? Those two things will define a culture. And then, like you said, they split it apart based on independence, interdependence, flexibility, and stability. And then based on the way that people act within a company or what they view the culture as, they were ranked as one of these different eight, eight different culture identities that the article presents.
1: Yes. And so these eight identities I would write down right now. These are crucial because these are words you can use when talking about company culture. And they, they relate to questions you could even ask, right? So what are they? Learning, enjoyment, purpose, caring, order, safety, authority, results. Now, yeah, two obviously jump out here, right, Jeanette? What yeah,
2: two those? were the most common. So the ranking, the percentages have to do with the number of organizations in their sample size that ranked these ideas as the top two so mm-hmm. it was the top two things in their company's culture right and the, the most common are caring and results um and it's really interesting that they're actually in polar opposite quadrants yes. right so they're very different kind of ideas one is very results is independence and stability and then caring is inter- interdependent and flexible Um, But a lot of companies rank both of these things as their top two culture definers kind of
1: idea. And why this is amazing, you know what, I would actually, you could just cross off the other six really and just put results and caring on here because (laughs) at its core, like that is what most companies are going to care about. So no matter who you're interviewing with, they are constantly trying to uh, balance two things. This is why human resources departments exist because they know a company has to achieve results. If they don't achieve results, the company doesn't exist. They have you have to achieve results. So performance matters. But at the same time, you have to have a working environment where everybody doesn't feel awful every day, where people feel good. They like working with the people. They think they 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 think that they're going to a place every day where people care and they actually do care. So that simplifies it in one sense, but it makes it extremely hard because they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. So there's this balance that obviously happens because like Jeanette said, caring is very high in terms of interdependence, but results is very high in terms of independence, right? So at the end of the day, you're responsible for your results at a company, right? But you have to work with other people. And that's why a lot of you will interview. You get all of these questions about how well you work with a team. You get all of these questions about your transferable skills, right? Not just your technical skills. This is why.
2: Yeah. And I think you can also ask questions about these two things, right? So you ask them, how do you communicate in the office? like, how do you measure results? Like these are the types of questions. If you ask them, they're going to be like, wow, like (laughs) how is this person even already thinking about these things when they're just here for an interview or even an informational interview?
1: Exactly. And you know, there is a, a priority here. I mean, they're close in number and they're the two things that need to be balanced. But and as PhDs, you're gonna feel good about this. I mean, results is 26% higher. I mean, it is significantly higher. So you have to perform and that's important, but there's this funny thing that happens when you're interviewing, right? As a PhD, they think you got, they, they know you have that box checked. You can achieve results, right? You follow metrics, you, that's, that box is checked. What they don't know is do you have what the second thing is, the second most important thing, the caring. Do you care about other people or have you been so isolated in academia working at the bench or your computer that you can't even function with a team, that you can't show other people that you care. We've done a lot of radio shows talking about how important this is because if you just go up to somebody and say, what are the results? I want these right now. And you know how a lot of us op- learn to operate in academia, you're, you're gonna blow the interview and you're gonna blow your first few months at a company. Um, we've seen PhDs get let go of because of this. So showing that you care about the other person, asking them about their day before you demand results from them for example, um, can help you walk that walk that line. So there's a second chart that goes with this, Jeanette. And what what we're looking at here on the left, there's some, uh, some call-outs. One says leaders want cultures with more flexibility. 94% want to increase learning. 50% want to maintain results. Now we have the same chart, right? And then we have the same colored points, right? One for caring, one for results, one for purpose, et cetera but then we have these two different gray lines and we have a gray line on the right that's light gray and then we have dark gray lines and they're going up or down. What what does this mean and how does it tie together with the, the key takeaways or call outs I just mentioned?
2: Yeah, of course. So this figure is sort of looking at, they asked the people in this in the sample, how would you like your culture to be changed, right? Like what's where would you like to see it go next or what's wrong with it, those kind of questions. And they found that a huge percentage, 94%, almost everyone, wanted their culture to become more focused on this learning identity which sort of just means in there like they define it as like being open-minded innovative you know like looking for ways you can improve and taking on new initiatives and it's really incredible because i loved this figure as a phd i looked at this and i thought well that's what we do right that's what you learn how to do is you learn how to learn you learn how to innovate and so you can come in and even talk about this, right? You can find out from them, ask, is this something you'd like, you know, you see maybe your culture changing this way? They're probably gonna say yes, because as we see, most companies want this, and then you can say, Oh, well, I really enjoy doing that. <laughs> so Exactly.
1: And yeah. what do we always say? We say a PhD is a doctor of what? Who can tell me in the chat box? <laughs> Somebody. You know we talk about this all the time. A PhD, thank you, Jessica. PhD is a doctor of learning, you're a doctor of philosophy. Philosophy is Knowledge and the ability to ascertain knowledge. They're doctors of learning. 94% of the leaders of these cultures want to increase learning, right? They want you to have a growth mindset. That's all that you have. We were just having a conversation the other day, our, our team, with another team member um, who doesn't have a PhD, and they were trying to streamline some of our processes so that we could um, take away some of the, the things that we had to do. We were, we were all stretched in terms of our bandwidth. And then as soon as a process was taken off of our plate, all of us PhDs were like, okay, now that that's removed, we can do this, this, and this, right? And that's how PhDs think. We don't think about how we can coast or what we can eliminate or what we can start doing. We said, what more can we do? What's the next thing? How can we learn? How can we improve this? How can we take on uh, as much as possible? Because that's just how we're wired. And so if you are unhappy, it's probably because you just haven't accepted that about yourself. You are never going to be satisfied unless you are stretched, right? Everybody has a certain level of being stretched. You're never going to be satisfied if you learn something and then you just start doing the same thing over and over. You're going to be ready for the next thing. But this is valuable to employers. Look at the data of what leaders want. They want you to increase learning, and you want that yourself. So quit hiding from who you really are and then leverage this data in your job search. One more section here for the show me the data, the statistical case for company culture. Now, this is an infographic, which we like to do every now and then. It's at everywhere.com. Uh, so on the left, we're looking at the link between employee, employee happiness and profit, right? So it says companies with happy employees have this, and then there's some statistics I'll let Jeanette go through. On the right, it says the link between happiness and productivity, okay? So morale, happiness, right? The caring, like feeling good while you're at work. What's the link between profits for a company and productivity? What do these studies show?
2: Yeah, yeah. So- I mean, it's it sort of makes sense. I think this is one of those things where you can just think logically through it, and they it all makes sense. It's not that surprising, um, but the data is interesting to look at. Right, that um, companies who have happy employees, it says they outperform the competition by twenty percent. Mm. You know, so they're just way more successful companies when the employees who work there are enjoying themselves, um, and companies with happy employees earn. 1 to t- 1.2 to 1.7 more percent more than their peer firms. So their like monetary gains are larger, right? And you're also seeing on the other side the happiness and productivity that the employees when they are happy are 12% more productive mm-hmm. than like an average employee and then if you look at the other end of this effect you like unhappy employees are actually 10% less productive than the average. <laughs> Right, so it's really important to companies that you are happy, right? That that makes sense to them, and so. But I think it's also on you to make sure that you align yourself with a company that is going to make you happy by investing in the culture and learning and finding a place that is good for you.
1: Yeah, and I really appreciate that last part because we all know, and not to get too abstract here, like happiness is a decision. Like nobody can make you happy; you have to do it yourself, um, and. So having that mindset, that caring mindset of adding value first, which we talk about a lot, even after you get hired, just add value first, they'll come back to you. You'll be happier, the people around you will, will be happier. And other studies that we've looked at too have shown that a big part of this is because happiness increases creativity. Like when you're stressed, you, you've probably noticed this as a PhD. As a PhD, you have to be very creative to think of new ways to do experiments, et cetera. If you're stressed, you're in a totally different mindset. You go into a scarcity mindset. You can't think creatively. You have to, and studies show this from blood flow in your brain. When you are stressed, your PI is pounding on you, you're worried about stuff, um, you're in a negative mindset, a scarcity mindset, there's less blood flow in your brain, and it starts to show up as just little punctuated spots in your brain. But when you're in a creative mindset, an abundant mindset, realizing that, okay, I actually have lots of options here, Right, I can get hired by all kinds of companies, and some of you Maybe you can't fathom that now, but you can't. With a PhD, you absolutely can't. The, stu- the, the same uh, studies of the brain scan show that the blood flow is just massively increased throughout the entire brain, and that's a big part of this. When you're more creative, you can be more productive, because you're not just hitting your head against the wall trying to do the same thing over and over again. You realize, like, oh, I don't have to spend the rest of my life pipetting by hand. There are robotics that can do this for me at almost any company that I'll, I can go work for, right? There are, there are you know, oh, I can pipette seven different wells at a time, eight different wells, 12 different wells at a time. It's that It's that kind of thinking. And that only comes from an abundance mindset. Anything to close on, Jeanette?
2: No, I think it's just such a great topic. And I, I would recommend that everyone go and read that Harvard Business Review article. It's really good.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Jeanette. Tell Jeanette thank you in the chat box. I, I agree. It's a great thank article. Thank you. Thank Jeanette and her bow tie for being here. And we are going to move forward now to our next next section which is our interview with Daniel Coyle so I'm gonna introduce Daniel here um, with his bio very excited to have him on I I had probably six seven people over the last few months recommend the book the culture code to me I don't know what that says about me or about the cheeky scientist culture but it was recommended frequently and he is the author of the culture code and of the talent code Uh, Daniel is a New York Times best-selling author Again, very grateful and lucky to have him on. Uh, Best-selling author of The Culture Code, The Talent Code, The Little Book of Talent, The Secret Race, and other books. He's the winner uh, with Hamilton of the 2012 William Hill Sports Book of the Year Prize. Very impressive. He is a contributing editor for Outside Magazine and works as a special advisor to the Cleveland Indians. Coyle lives in Cleveland, Ohio during the school year and in Homer, Alaska. Wow, Alaska. Uh, During the summer with his wife, Jen, and his four children. I want to show his LinkedIn profile because we're also active on LinkedIn. This is Daniel's LinkedIn profile. We're going to put the links to both of these and to his book. I highly recommend you go out and get his book. I would start with the talent code for where all of you are at right now and what you're looking for in terms of your careers, but then I would quickly get the culture code by both of them, get him for the holidays. It's an excellent book. He has some articles here on his LinkedIn profile. But we don't have to spend any more time on that because we have him here in person. Hello, Daniel. How are you? I don't think we have audio. I'm not sure if it's just me. Let me see if I can um, sometimes. Oh, Oh, there we go.
3: Hello. Hello. How's that? That's perfect. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here with your cheeky scientists. I, I couldn't resist the name. I appreciate it. And are you in Alaska right now? I'm not. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. We're heading up in about a week for Christmas, but uh, right now it looks, looks a little bit like Alaska out there. Looks
1: like Alaska one way or another. Uh, fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, really, really appreciate all the work that you've done. I mean, you've done incredible work in your books. have uh, They were really fascinating for me, and um, I know Mary has uh, read the, the Culture Code, too, uh, who's on with us. So I appreciate that. And I thought we could start very simple in just helping everyone here understand what culture is
3: culture what a, what a great I mean how many times have you said it today I mean I've been listening for only a few minutes and I hear it over and over again and you're not unusual everyone is having this conversation right now because we know how powerful it is culture is an interaction that causes humans to add up to more than the sum of their parts yes. if you think if, if, if you think about most human groups they actually most of them add up to less if you take the individual talents and the talents of the entire group, most human groups add up to less strong culture is when you have a high ratio of, of what you're producing versus what goes in. And so it can be defined in a lot of different dimensions. That's sort of my favorite because it's, it's what we sense. When you walk into a good restaurant, when you walk into a good school, when you walk into a great family, you feel it, you can feel it in the interactions. So we've got this feeling that it's kind of this magical thing that some people have in their dna that's the way we've typically thought about culture but what the science is showing us and uh, you know what i spent the last five years sort of obsessing about is you can see it you can measure it you could it it is a set of interactions a deep human grammar that's in our brains Um, it feels like magic it ain't magic it is it is a, a set of interactions that causes people to add up to more and and so that's the, um, you know, that's kind of the roughest definition of it. But as, as, as you know, it's it's more powerful than strategy. It's more powerful than execution. It's more powerful. It's most sort of the most powerful human force in the world.
1: Yeah, and I like that you brought up strategy because as PhDs, we tend to obsess over just like strategy execution results. Um, and we've had somebody in our uh, the, our program leader in our scientist MBA program always says, culture eats strategy for breakfast.
3: Mm. <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. Right. So I think you're exactly right. So I really like your simple definition of what culture is and it's the, the sum of those parts. And it's this at, this, at one level, there is a science to it, but it also, it seems more like an art, like you said, right? Like just like this magical force that if you're in a good, good company uh, of people that you can feel and sense. So how do we make that practical? Like, especially in a job search, when you're, you're right. working or you're going on a job interview, what are companies looking for now in candidates? How are they evaluating them on whether or not they will be a good culture fit? And so maybe we can just talk about the employer side
3: first. Yeah, we, there's, there's, um, there's a few different ways to sort of look at this. It is, a, it is a word. A lot of places don't have a good definition of what culture is. And when they think about fit, they just think about hiring someone that is like us, creating, a, creating some kind of a monoculture. Um, and that actually can be a sign that you're, you're maybe not in a great culture. Um, what, the, what employers, what smart employers are looking for, is they're looking for people who can grow and learn. Um, that you know, Not hiring for skills, but hiring for people who can not just fit, but I think a better word is contribute from an employer point of view. If you hire for fit, you're hiring under a narrow aperture. If you hire for contribution, how do you create more cognitive diversity? How do you get more minds in there? And crucially, how do you hire people who, you know, great cultures have zero tolerance for brilliant jerks zero that was one of the things that i realized in researching the book for the book i I visited all these top performing cultures around the planet you know pixar navy seal team six san antonio spurs they all have zero tolerance for brilliant jerks which is kind of surprising because brilliance matters you know a lot of people listening this 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 broadcast today are, are brilliant in their field but there is a really a zero tolerance in fact the san antonio spurs have in their scouting report they're looking for employees they're scouting basketball players at the bottom is is a box uh, and it's next to the box it says not a spur, and if that box is checked, they will not draft that player, no matter how great that player might be. same with the navy seal, same with all these places they, they will absolutely not tolerate jerk like behaviors because as a study show it diminishes group behavior thirty to forty percent right off the bat so they 're looking for somebody who doesn 't pop any of those red flags they 're looking for someone who can interact smoothly and have room for growth and show vulnerability I, th- I think that 's another key factor that that um I think employers are really looking for. They're looking for people who've got, who've got room to grow and who can show that they can have the combination of self-reflectiveness and self-awareness that allows them that growth. And there's some really cool litmus tests that some employers do. I know this is a kind of a random example, but Bill Belichick, football coach for the New England Patriots, he will bring in a prospective player, cue up that player's worst play of the previous season, play it, and then see how that player reacts. If that player starts making an excuse and saying, hey, that wasn't my coverage, the coach didn't tell me, what, that player's out. If that player owned it and says, here's where I learned, this is what I did, this is what happened, and they break it down in a way that makes, that makes it clear that they're, that they're a learner. Um, so these little litmus tests that, that test for behavior, I think that's what employers are looking for. They're trying to test behavior. As such, you see more and more employers going to, look, interviews are terrible predictors. Interviews don't work very well. What works well is a behavioral sample. And so coming in for a sample day, working on a sample project, and during that project, showing clear self-awareness and ability to reflect and ability to confront mistakes and fix mistakes. Because what business people realize today is that it is not a systems contest. It is a learning contest. It's a group learning contest. And businesses that do that the best are going to win. And you cannot do that if you have people who are defensive when it comes to opportunities to learn.
1: I love that i mean i want to just unpack that for a second for all of you right we talked a lot about how employers especially for phds they look for arrogance defensiveness and awkwardness and daniel just said the word defensiveness i mean that's exactly the reason why and it, it creates this kind of conundrum that i think as phds we're not used to for big to make big things happen you eventually can't do it by yourself you require a team of people businesses right especially whether it's a pfizer with you know tens of thousands of employees or a company of 10 people yet you are probably used to working in a very small team, maybe a small lab of like you and two people, and maybe you've watched too many movies where it's like one person against the world. And so you just think like, if I am just a brilliant jerk, people will conform to me, but sooner or later, you're gonna reach your limit of being able to get things done, and a company knows that, and that's why they're evaluating you on this stuff. And I think the personal responsibility component that uh, Daniel said is crucial, crucial. Uh, you have to show that you can say, I made this mistake. Or as many of you learned on your thesis committee meetings, right? Saying, being able to say, I don't know, but here's what I can do better and taking that responsibility. I think that's fantastic. So, so shifting gears to the job candidate side, right? For a company, you want to get hired. What kind of things can you do to make sure the, you're finding the right company with the right culture for you, but also showing the company that you actually understand culture. You actually understand what they're looking for and and I guess to, to make that fit happen
3: right 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 yeah no it's it's a fascinating question, and it's two questions that I think you can approach your prospective employers with two two dimensions to investigate in, and literally there are, there are, well maybe there's three things first, ask the employer to tell you a story about their group that would not happen anywhere else. Tell me a story about your group that doesn't happen in other places that ends up being. A, a kind of very informal, very organic, but litmus test. If they have three or four of those stories queued up, and I'll, I'll give you an example, you know, it's funny. I guess I have some things in common with your, your listeners because as a writer, I'm by myself all the time. I'm trying to be brilliant. It's that whole curse, like the rugged individual, you know, working away on his masterpiece. It seems very appealing. Um, it, it, and, and only until I started working with the Cleveland Indians about five years ago, And it was only through that set of interactions that you really realized how deeply true what you said was the idea that you really accomplish more, more as a group. And, um, you know, when you ask that, that question, tell me a story about something that doesn't happen anywhere else. You can, you can quickly get to kind of the, the things that really matter. Good groups have got 10 of those stories. Another question you can ask is what gets rewarded around here? Mm. Simple question kind of a complex question to answer. Um, you know, what gets rooted on here? What, what kinds of performances really get rewarded around here at that, that matters. Um, and the third thing you can do is go and see if you can talk to people who have recently left the group and a good culture, a strong culture will happily, happily connect you to people. And the cultures that I visited, the cultures that I included in the book, they, they were all really had learning and development as the core. They realized that this isn 't some kind of a kumbaya family they 're creating where we can all stay together the rest of our lives. but they do realize they do make the promise to their people when you leave here, you will be smarter mm. and that those relationships that that promise of development ends up creating kind of a long tail of people who are connected to this place who who think of it highly, who love it and who recommend it highly so if they say, yes, we've got 10 people you can talk to who worked here in the last two years, please do. That's a tremendous sign to you that, hey, these people are, um, are moving in the right direction. And when you think about, you know, when you think about your, all this stuff is so important, I think, in part, because a lot of the easy problems have been solved. You know, a lot of the business today, as I said, is a learning contest to navigate a very complicated landscape at speed, learning together all the time, is really kind of a, you know, you picture a, a flock of birds moving through a forest or something like that. That's what the business landscape is like. And so those skills that don't seem important, like being able to get along with people and demonstrating care and, and, and looking at the whole person, all that stuff that seems kind of BS uh, from, from a, from a point, point of like, well, you just have to be smart and know you know what you're doing. And an individually brilliant person will always survive. Those skills take on a hugely different um, aspect when you realize how core they are to functioning as human beings and how evolution has built our brains over millions of years to respond unconsciously to signals that someone cares or that someone sees our whole self or that someone is curious about us or that we share our future. So these, these little signals that you send are, are connected to this much larger grammar that I think big gr- good groups speak very clearly to each other. And so it's like a, if you treat it like a language you can learn. Don't treat it like some magical vibe that you have to have, some charismatic thing. It's not. It's a, it's a language you can learn. And one thing, you know, there's a Navy SEAL commander who told me, he said, look, at the most basic level, is like, your face has two settings. It can either be closed. It's like a door. It can either be closed. You could be thinking brilliant thoughts and focused interior, or it can be open. And, and this is your frontalis muscle, and it's probably the most important muscle in your body when it comes to communicating with other people. And in cultures you see people with this expression all the time their eyebrows are way up and they are expressing radiating sending this radio signal of intense curiosity and interest it seems stupid that that would make such a difference on the one hand on the other hand it kind of connects us to this this deep evolutionary past that is existing in your brain at all times uh deciding whether you're connected to the people around you or not
1: yeah um Fantastic. And so, you know, if you're walking around like this all the time in your head, which most of us as most of us are. introverted, especially yep. here, introverted, um, and maybe you're more of a, uh, you know, they call it intuitive or thinking in your head. You have these advanced systems in your head and you're processing things. You can get in this state a lot and just being more open. We talked last week about this. You know, every time you go through a door, just practice opening up. Little things like that can affect the culture, and I really like that. But you, you talk about sending out these signals, whether, you know, having an unfurled brow, maybe some other things you can do language wise. After you get a job, you're in you know, your first industry position, as many people here will, will either have just got into their first position or they're, they're gonna be getting into there soon. How can you affect culture in a junior position? How can you affect culture if you're not the CEO?
0: Yeah.
3: Great question. Well, culture is kind of the 15 feet around you. That's one way. Will you think about your culture? Yeah, no, you can't affect the mission statement of the, of the giant organization, but you can affect the 15 feet around you very clearly. You know, in the book, I tell, you know, a few stories about, i always wanted about Google at Jeff Dean who had these small little gatherings to have coffee every day. Um, And those, that gathering, that tribal sort of campfire that he created every single day ended up sort of being a model for the whole company of how to get together and talk and learn together and exchange ideas across organizational boundaries. So the little things like that you can do. Um, a couple of others ideas might be to sort of approach it with a mind hold of critical moment theory. There's critical moments when you can have that sort of impact, um, especially when a team first gets together. If you're on a new project and the team gets together, you have an opportunity to establish norms, especially when it comes to the first moment together and the first disagreement. The first disagreement is a really critical moment in the formation of a team. Pay attention to that. If you define that well and say, look, we're about learning. I'm glad you would disagree on this because it's really going to help. That affects the culture. Thirdly, I would say, look for the opportunity to take field trips. When it comes to influencing people above you, there's nothing like an experience to say, look, okay, we make whatever we make widgets, but here's this other company over here that does that. But what if we spent a day or did an idea exchange with them? What would that open up So to, to take field trips? Um, so it's, it's hard. I mean, I don't want to say that it's easy to influence culture from, from the middle, but if you pay attention to the 15 feet around you, critical moments, theory, think about field trips. Um, and the last thing I would say, I guess is, is, is pay attention to the power of story. You know, that, Story is the greatest drug ever invented for, um, for creating sort of perception and belief. And, and so if there is a great story to tell, um, you know, I, I was just visiting a group and they work on, they build um, helicopter parts and one of them showed up at a meeting with a bolt uh, and the bolt was broken. And then he tells a story about how someone discovered this broken bolt and because of that discovery, the, the pilot, the Air Force pilot who was piloting the helicopter didn't die, he survived. And then they bring out the Air Force guy, the, the, the guy and his family on the stage. And it was this incredible moment, this story, linking this small action of paying attention uh, to the safety check through with the life of this person and his family. Um, telling a single story like that at the right moment can completely guide the culture. Cultures, organizations are actually made up of stories you know they are made up of stories and so paying attention to story um even as a junior person and and bringing spotlighting things and treating stories as a as almost a resource to be dug out of the ground and shared and and harvested and 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 spread around so um wow. thinking about that could be a way to can be a way to influence culture as well
1: yeah fantastic and uh, for those of you you know who are in the middle of your job search and you maybe you've had some interviews, you know the power of stories from your point of view, you know, using the STAR method in an interview, telling a story on your end, talk. You know, trying to tie the story that you're telling to the story of the company or what the company cares about. Last question, you've also written a book called The Talent Code, and I, this was really interesting to uh, myself and, and my team, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about something that a lot of the people here are experiencing, you know, the dip, right? You're learning something new. Like maybe right now it's just learning about culture and you spent all of your time in a lab uh, only focused on the technical side of things, not thinking about culture or caring in the relationship. And so you try to learn about it, but it's a struggle. Or maybe it's just trying to learn about how to get a job in business and in industry instead of being in academia, right? And there's this, this dip that happens where things get worse and they feel worse before it gets better. Um, can you talk a little bit about how to navigate that dip and the uncomfortableness and the uncertainty?
3: Yeah. You know, I mean, to sort of, I don't know if this would appeal uh, to your, to your crowd, but you know, the very idea I think that many of us grew up with, with the idea of talent and learning and skill is that it was something that had to be sort of uncovered. And the more we understand the science of it is it's not an uncovering, it's a structural, it's a, it's a construction process. Your brain is a construction zone and the process of making those new links literally making those new links not a metaphor you're you're building something in your brain you're making those new links sucked i mean it's painful it's difficult operating on the edge of your ability where growth happens is really it's socially embarrassing um, it's it's humbling um, and it's it's exhausting and it's really painful um, but that's a place where growth happens so when you get this dip when you try something new you go to the edge of your performance zone and your performance starts to dip um, there's a there's a tendency to view that as a judgment there's a tendency to view that as a revelation. I wasn't meant to be good at that. And so if you instead think of it a different way, which as an investment, doing that is it's you are, you cannot progress without that dip. You cannot progress by staying in your comfort zone, only by getting to the edge. And there's a great, I mean, speaking of story, you know, Wayne Gretzky was a pretty good hockey player, uh, maybe the best that ever lived. And his teammates were frequently, sort of surprised because occasionally they would see him practicing his skating on the ice and he would fall down. And that, you know, this is the guy's best hockey player ever, ever. And, um, he was falling down. And when they asked him that, um, and he, he sort of explained it, he said, well, you know, you can't get better unless you're willing to sort of be embarrassed. You know, you, you need to be willing to be embarrassed in order to get better. And so not to shy away from that, but actually to, um, comfortable with that and to embrace that, to lean into that moment of failure and realize that's actually where the new connection is happening in your brain In at that moment. That feeling, of, that burn is, is actually the, the burn of learning. So um, you, seeing that dip not as, a, not as something to be avoided, but as actually something to, to be deliberate and, and aggressive um, and systematic about seeking
1: like that about seeking so thank you very much please thank Daniel for being on with us Your fantastic insights I think they're. we do these uh, picture quotes afterwards for the best quotes and I think we're gonna have about 50 for for you um, but this was great let me share my screen because I want to I want to do two things one I don't normally do I'm opening up the actual Amazon uh, page and link because let's face it most of you're gonna buy the book on Amazon not another site and we're gonna put this link in the chat box. I want all of you to go get the Culture Code book. I don't think anything can be more important uh, for all of you, you know, given where you're coming from academia and to understanding this, and as far as what employers are looking for it, we know they're looking for this first. I think we even attracted Asia onto this webinar and she talks about culture a lot. I mentioned her earlier. So really, really lucky to have on uh, Daniel. So go get the book for you, for another associate for Christmas. And do me a favor, go to his LinkedIn page, and I want you to all connect with him and all reach out to him so he can see how well PhDs follow up. And it'll give him a whole new following of people that, uh, a segment that maybe he hasn't reached yet with his book. So thank you very much, Daniel. Really appreciate your time.
3: Thanks, Isaiah. Enjoyed it a lot. Thanks for having me.
1: All right, perfect. So again, this is Daniel's LinkedIn page. We're going to put the link in the chat boxes, the comment boxes, and everywhere where we are live streaming. And we're gonna put the link for the Amazon page here uh, so you can get the culture code. Uh, You can, of course, get it by Kindle or hardcover. There's paperback options. Uh, Five star, we don't normally see that, right? The full five star ranking when you have over 100 reviews. It is is an incredible book and uh, you can tell why. He has a way with words. So very grateful to have uh, Daniel on. I also want to mention, uh, for those of you who are just joining us, quite a few of you have come on here that we have a show up bonus that you can only get before the end of the webinar. That's why we call it the show up bonus and it's on company culture. So if you go to cheekyscientist.com show-up-bonus-company-culture, you can get our five ways PhDs can determine a company's culture. Again, when we're talking about culture fit, you first have to identify that what the company's culture is. And yes, you can ask these questions, but what questions should you ask? Some of those questions uh, uh, that Daniel came up with were were perfect, right? Asking them to tell a a story about what they do at their company that nobody else does or something that has happened at their company that hasn't happened anywhere else, right? This uh, quick start guide will help you further um, in terms of asking the right questions to identify company culture, looking at what company culture actually is, thinking about it in a new way. And this page is only live during the live show that we're on right now so i'm going to bring our next guest on we have on ron hunter i'm going to show his bio here and then we're going to bring on ron very excited to have ron on with us there we go so i'm going to show his bio another amazing bow tie that's two bow ties in one show Ron completed his phd in analytical chemistry at emory university uh, he worked on projects related to toxicology public health at the environmental protection agency uh, Emory's Rollins School of Public Health and Centers of Disease Control. He has spent three years in a scientist role at the Coca-Cola Company. Uh, Ron recently started a new job as the Technical Director of Chemistry for North America at, Ron help me with this, Murex Nurture Sciences. Is that close? Mare you. Mare you. Mare you. <laughs> French. Mare you Nurture Sciences. One of Ron's previous managers said that Ron said to Ron that he is one of his greatest attributes is he is an excellent networker. This is true. He has built many strong relationships through his networking skills and his contagious optimism. Uh, I am convinced he has never met a stranger. He is active both inside and outside of the company with various organizations. Uh, in particular, the 2017 chair of the Georgia section of the American Chemical Society. In his spare time he likes to travel and before we bring ron on i want to show his linkedin profile i love his banner for those of you that have been on previous radio shows we've really broke down a lot of people's uh, a lot of phds profiles banners pictures very professional you can see that he is an associate like you we love to see associates go on and work for various organizations especially phds who go into large brand names like coca-cola and we've had previously uh, recently hilton and home depot it's, it's fascinating to see continue to take over positions in new segments. So without further ado, Ron, how are you?
0: Good, how are you, Isaiah? Thank you for having me.
1: Good to see you on, yeah. Congratulations on your (laughs) success and for everything you've done. And it's so great to see you continue to get those excellent reviews, performance or otherwise from people. So it's an honor to have you here. My first question, are you ready?
0: I'm, re- I'm ready for you.
1: <laughs> well, I always want to know about the transition, right? So we're talking to a lot of PhDs here, uh, most of which who have not transitioned yet. And we want to help them get over the finish line, especially in December, because we're still seeing hiring up. Right. What does transition look like? What are some of the key points? And if you could do it in two phases, all the challenges you faced, both mindset-wise, maybe some technical challenges like a resume or LinkedIn thing. And then what did you change? to get hired? And then what did the the actual transition story look like?
0: So I think um, it depends on the job, right? So I went from postdoc to government job, and then I went from government job to industry job, um, and then now industry job to industry job. So uh, I think the first thing for, let's say government or industry, is that the resumes look different. Um, The resumes are very different. Um, The networking is different. Um, I think as you say in the Cheeky Scientist Association network, um, go to the events that you wanna meet the right people at, right? So CDC people aren't hanging out where Coca-Cola people are hanging out. (laughs) Um, And then updating your resume to be more industry. So once I realized, hey, I wanna try to to get an industry job, um, I needed to change my resume, make it less federal, and more succinct, um, and then do the networking from that aspect of meeting people who worked in industry um, versus people who worked in government. Um, That was one. And then the cultural transition um, from postdoc to government job versus industry is that, as a postdoc, you're still living that PhD life. um, And then when you get a quote unquote real job uh, you have to learn how to navigate the politics, a different set of politics um, uh, between the industry and government or, or any job uh, that's non academic.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about the culture a little bit because obviously that's the, the topic for today. Mm-hmm. How are some of the cultures different um, for the, the jobs that you've had? Because you've had, a ver- you know, you've had uh, three now at least. Um, so how have the cultures been different? What are some of the slight changes you've seen you know, not necessarily good or bad, but just different. And then how did you navigate going from one culture to another? Because another, that was always a shock for me. I'd go to one, like, especially my first two companies. One company, yeah. the feeling there was very different than the second company. I was like, wow, this is like a whole, I feel like I'm stepping into a new life. So, what was it like? So,
0: so I think a huge transition for me was less the postdoc to CDC because CDC had a very um, research oriented feel. So that was a smoother transition. And then when you go to Coca Cola, it's a huge company, yeah. 5,000 people. You're a scientist there. Um, there are all these things you need to learn about hierarchy, um, where you fit. Um, the turnaround time is much quicker um, because your product depends on, um, or you depend on, the product depends on you um, releasing the product. Um, I worked in the quality lab there. Uh, there are different aspects of it where there's it 's more intense mm. um, and now, um, in my new role as technical director it 's very similar as well, but more on a higher level. so I have um, eight or nine labs in which i 'm man- managing the quality aspects of those labs, but again, um, the impact on human health is extremely important, so it 's just a different level of um, intensity, um, and you get used to it. it gets more and more intense but becomes your new normal um, yes yeah
1: yeah so i think you know no matter where you're going next even if you already are in a job in industry correct you need to industry industry to government there's going to be a culture change and so it's not specific for those of you going from academia to industry there might be more differences but either way you're, you're going to see a huge difference and so what are some of the things that you did, right? You had that review that we read about how great you are in terms of being a networker. You're involved in lots of different organizations and cultures. Yes. So how do you, how do you stay who you are, be, you know, and navigate your way through all those different cultures and have people like you in, in different networks and different cultures. What are, what do you do to stay true to yourself, but also to adapt to the culture?
0: So I think the first thing that I always encourage people to do is always remember who you are principally and to bring your whole self to whatever you do. Um, You can keep that as in the forefront of your mind, then everything else kind of um, flows accordingly. I'm also a military kid, so I grew up traveling a lot. And you kind of learn through growing up that you need to make friends quick because you're only going to be there a short period of time. Uh, and so I think that in itself is a talent. Uh, and then uh, you don't, you can't be opportunistic. You're not going to be friends with everyone. Mm-hmm. You're not going to um, be a good fit for every company. And so if you're just not vibing with someone, you just have to let that go. Yes. And and move on to the, another um, party. Another thing that I heard you guys mention is introverts. So a huge tip I give a lot of introverts is. Um, Someone told me they always cling on to me because I'm not an introvert. So in a networking event, they find the extrovert and they stand next to that person because I'm guaranteed to introduce them to the people around me. Mm. Absolutely true. Um, So that's one of the tips I always give to introverts. If you're scared to make an introduction, have the extrovert do it for you Uh, and then segue into that. But um, I think those are my keys. Don't be opportunistic Um, leave the situation when it's not working um, and then just be yourself you have to be yourself if you're not yourself then they're not going to um, vibe with you anyway because they're not getting the authentic person
1: yeah i really like that and notice just how ron said this with like a big smile on his face right if people aren't (laughs) vibing with you just move on it's okay and and if you could treat it like that your life will be a lot easier especially when you're kind of going through an Intensive power networking phase trying right. to your job. Like you cannot let that stuff hold you back. You reach out to somebody, they give you the cold shoulder in person or LinkedIn. You you can't even miss a beat. Have that big smile on your face, like like Ron just did, and just move on, right? Uh, to to the next. I mean, there's billions of other people you can connect with, and I think
0: that's a great right. Thing. And when you're true to yourself, you'll end up in the right place with the right culture, um, because then you'll be a great fit for that company. Exactly.
1: Uh, I had a couple of other questions for you. So you left academia and one thing our team wanted to know, and we had a lot of people write in about is uh, when we have guests on who Uh have transitioned, why, what was your, why, why did you leave academia?
0: So I didn't want to leave academia. Right. Uh, So initially I applied to be a professor at Drexel university. I had an interview and it didn't work out. Um, And I, I, that was my goal. Like a lot of people, I'm going to be, be a professor. I like teaching students. I still interact with a lot of students in um, mentoring ways now. Um, and then I saw this position at CDC and I applied to be an O-Rice Fellow and got the job with the long-term intention of it being becoming a full-time job. Um, and then from there I said, hey, I tried government. Uh, I've never tried the industry. I've tried academia. Let me see if I'm, I don't want to write it off unless I try it. So I tried industry and that was the best match for my personality and my goals in life um, at that time. And it still has been over the last four or five years now.
1: That's great. And my <clears throat> last question is how is life different since you left academia? Right. So you got in, I think this is something that's always a black box. We think right? Some people think I'm going to transition, get a job everything's going to be magical. It's going to be perfect. Great. All my problems go away. Right. And there's other people who are just like, I have no idea what's going to happen, but it's got to be better than where I'm at right now. <laughs> and right. so in yeah. a painful situation. So what, what are some of the differences now that you've had an established industry career that you can see looking back?
0: So I'm more on the it's been magical uh, for me personally. Uh, I think uh, making sure that I chose the right culture fit was amazing. Working at Coca-Cola was amazing as well Um, it's a huge company with brand recognition as you mentioned similar to home depot Um, the the culture of the company was a really good fit at the time Um, just looking at the ads the commercial ads for that company um, the freedom uh, in your research as well so you are essentially in charge of your own projects Mm. at um at the company you have autonomy The ability to network, if you're good at that, and and the politics, uh, you have lots of different spaces where you can grow. Um, You can learn about marketing, you can learn more about science, more about quality. And so for me, the transition to industry has just been amazing because there's such a huge and vast world out there outside of an academic job, Mm -hmm. um, still able to have the impact on students that I craved as an academic right? So I go to the conferences. I'm involved in all of the organizations. I'm mentoring students, and now I'm also able to serve in, as an example that this isn't a non-traditional career. This is just another career um, mm. you have. And yes, go get this degree if you if you want, um, and there, there's a vast many options for you to be successful in life. So yeah, it's been really... Uh, to me, magical, so I can't, I don't know how to describe it.
1: That's great, well, I, I think that's a good note to end on, and uh, you can see what's waiting for all of you on the other side. Um, you can get into that great culture fit, you can have the experiences uh, that, that Ron has had, and most importantly, you can uh, be recognized for your value. Right, right now, I right. feel very valuable in academia, but you can see by that big smile on Ron's face that <laughs> you are valuable, so right. no matter where you are, Make sure you are just taking the steps. You're trusting the process. If you're one of our associates, you're following the cheeky methodology uh, and and you're you're going to get a job and you're going to uh, experience the things Ron has shared with us today. So thank you, Ron, for your time. Really appreciate it. Great to see you. No problem. Good to
0: see you too. Thanks chatting.
1: Okay. So I'm going to show Ron's LinkedIn page one more time. Let's go and connect with Ron as well. He has, uh, there's a lot you can learn from Ron, and he's done a great job in his career and has been very successful. He's such a, such a great example for other associates and for PhDs everywhere. So this, again, is his LinkedIn profile, and we are very, very grateful to have had Ron on with us. Okay, so we're going to switch gears now, and we're going to talk about what it takes and some of the misconceptions, some of the things that have changed when it comes to getting hired specifically in the U.S. Now, why are we talking about this? Uh, Next week, one of our advanced programs that's only available for associates uh, is opening up. It's called the International PhD Community. And the program has two two focuses. One is to help uh, expats in the U.S. understand the visa process, which can be complicated and changes, and there's a lot of misinformation out there, especially in today's political climate. And then number two, to provide that support as an expat. And that could be, you know, just in general, in terms of where to find things, understanding the laws, the rules of the country, but also simple things. We did an interview very recently um, in the private group for the international PhD community. And we talked to uh, one of the members, Sumant, who had transitioned and and was able to get sponsored for, for his visa and he said, you know, just having a support network that helped me understand that if somebody asks, how my day is here. It's not like it is in India where you will have a long conversation and go into the details of your life and what's happened over the last few months or even few years, but it's more of how, how are you? And good. Thank you. (laughs) That's the end of it. And this is something that, um, you know, I have experienced myself. I worked in Germany for a couple of years and it was very difficult to navigate the, the differences in culture and personality types. Um, I ended up joining a expat coffee community over there. Uh, I'll tell you that uh, Germany takes assimilation very seriously. You have to take classes on how to speak German. Uh, you have to obviously l- learn the laws and, and, and the, the meetings and the, the difference in hierarchy, very, very strict in terms of hierarchy um, at companies over there. Little things like you have to have your picture on your resume, things like that really matters. Also, we looked into the the numbers for our associates. So we, we have over 6,000 associates now. And in terms of the percentages, uh, for those working in the US, 30 to 40% were not born in the US. And I, didn't, I couldn't believe that statistic at first. So I went and looked at data online and found that those numbers hold true for all PhDs in the US. Over 40% currently, uh, we're not born in the U.S., right? So this means that the topic of understanding the visa process, getting support as an expat, is very, very important. It's predicted by 20. Well, some uh, one reference uh, predicts by 2020. Another reference predicts by 2022. 50% of all PhDs in the U.S. will have been born in another country. So again, these uh, immigration issues, visa issues, etc., um, being an expat is crucial and so what we've done is we created this advanced program the international uh, PhD community I'm gonna put the the informational page up here in a second we've created this community and we've partnered with uh, the best legal firm in the US when it comes to helping PhDs especially stem PhDs get sponsored go through the visa process understand the visa process fill out their paperwork etc identify you know what's true what's not true navigate their way through the misinformation. Um, It's Getzen and Schatz. And if you go to researchergreencard.com, you can see their website. We're actually going to bring on Brian Getzen with us shortly after I uh, introduce him here. So I'm going to share my screen here. This is the program. If you go to com slash international dash learn dash more, you can learn more about this program and how it deals with Industry sponsorship, immigration challenges, visa options, uh, expat support, private uh, membership groups. There's some data here, what other people are saying in the program. There is a board. You get a, a board certificate after going through the program. And again, our partners in the program are Getzen and Schatz here, uh, which you can learn more about by going to Researcher Green Card. We do have on Brian Getzen with us. I'm going to uh, bring him on after I introduce him here. Uh, He leads the firm's uh, nationwide immigration practice and has extensive experience preparing EB1A, EB1B, and NIW petitions for researchers throughout the United States. Um, After graduating cum laude from Duke University, uh, Mr. Getzen attended the University of Pennsylvania Law School, received his law degree in 95, and joined the firm and concentrated his practice specifically on immigration law. And he has worked with prestigious organizations, including the American Society for Cell Biology, Materials Research Society, American Chemical Society, the Association for Research and Vision and Ophthalmology, American Physical Society. So again, this, this is the person that you want to hear from when it comes to immigration challenges, specifically for STEM PhDs. And I'm going to bring Brian on now. Brian, how are you?
4: Very well, Isaiah. Thank you so much for having me today.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you on, and I appreciate you being with us in this larger venue uh, Brian and I do a lot of conversations uh, in the international PhD community private group. One of my favorites was a true or false uh, section uh, session that we did. And uh, that was our most viewed so far uh, until today. And, I, and Brian always does a great job of sending me questions that he's hearing on the ground, uh, things that are creating uh, uncertainty or fear, or misinformation. And he always helps us provide clarity for you, for PhDs not born in the US who are trying to get a job in the US. Uh, so the the top mistakes made by researchers in the green card, green card application process is what we're focusing on today. And the first one is filing too early or too late, Brian. So can you help us understand what's the mistake here?
4: Sure, Isaiah. So what I mean by filing too early is filing before you're qualified to meet the legal standard for the green card. And, you know, generally speaking, I'm looking at level of citation as the primary factor to consider in when to file. And if we're dealing with a national interest labor petition, we like to see 75 to 100 citations. If we're dealing with an EB1A extraordinary ability alien petition, we like to see 300 citations or higher. And for an EB1B outstanding researcher petition, it's somewhere in between. But, you know, level of citation is not the end all be all. So, you know, we have had cases approved in all different categories at various levels of citation, but filing before you're qualified, if you wind up filing too early and you get your case denied, then you can certainly apply again, but it's harder to get approved the second time after a denial. So you want to be careful about, you know, what is the right time to file? So filing too early has to do with your credentials. And filing too late has to do with your status in the United States. You, if you're in the United States, you're likely here in F1, J1, or H1B. And you don't want to go wait too long that you risk running out of time in your underlying non-immigrant status. So Mm -hmm. you're balancing your credentials in terms of not wanting to file too early and your underlying status in the United States in terms of not wanting to file too late because you always wanna make sure you can maintain your non-immigrant status. So I tell people it's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, you wanna be just right when it comes to file.
1: Perfect, and I wanna get through as much as we can here. The, The next mistake is providing letters Uh, that lack specificity. Can you talk about this? Sure. So
4: that's become, you know, a a big focal point of the immigration service over recent years is they want to know exactly what it is that you have discovered and why it's important from a practical standpoint. You know, are you leading to a drug discovery? Is there any material that's, you know, being used for a, a, a semiconductor or a chip or anything like that? And then, how was your research recognized? Was it published? Was it presented? Are other people using it, et cetera? So, you know, what I see other lawyers do sometimes is they don't put the time and effort into writing letters, and Mm. they wind up writing two to three page letters that really don't give the the full picture of somebody's research career. Mm. So, you know, I like to write letters that have specificity to fully explain to the immigration officer you know, what it is that you have accomplished, and why has it impacted the field. You know, you want the immigration officer reading your case to say, I really want to give this person a green card. I want them to keep researching in the United States to better the economy, healthcare, the environment, whatever it may be. So you have to tell your story to the immigration officer with specificity.
1: Perfect. What about providing letters that contain uh, future-looking language? We've talked a lot about this, uh, like potentially or will, or this could happen.
4: Sure. so this is what I call the kiss of death, idea when you're submitting an immigration case, you know, and a lot of people tend to do that. You know, a lot of authors want to say, oh, you know, this may lead to something, or it has the potential to, you know, create a a treatment for this disease in 10 years from now. Well, immigration is only giving you a green card based upon what you have already accomplished in the past. So never use a word like potential may or might in a reference letter, because immigration is just gonna use that against you. You know, I, I never ever wanna give immigration something affirmatively that they can use to deny your case. And sometimes when I write letters for people, they send it to the authors and the authors make those changes. And then I have to go back and read the letter that come, came back to me and say, oh, please go back to the author and explain why you can't use the word potential."
1: Yeah. And uh, I mean, just little things like that. Like it just takes just one small thing to give them a reason not to approve you. And that's what I love. Cause it kind of relates to what we talk a lot about for those of you watching with your resume, like don't give them a reason to, uh, deny you or throw your resume in the trash or in this case, you know, not allow you to get your visa. Um, What about calling yourself? I want to stay specific here. What about calling yourself young or an early career researcher?
4: Sure. So this is again, something you don't want to do that immigration is going to use to deny your case. Most of the people that are applying for green cards, Isaiah, they are early career, young researchers. You know, by the time you're 30 years into your career, you're probably not looking to apply for a green card. You're looking to apply most people when they're in their postdoc, or you know that, that's or they've just graduated their PhD and have gone to industry. So that's really the, the the sweet spot to apply for a green card. Maybe you wait a few more years if you need to grow your credentials, but you know so you are in fact young or early career when you're applying for the green card. But you can't tell that to immigration because immigration is comparing you to all researchers in the field at any career stage. And most of the people that we're applying for, even in the postdoc, they really have had unbelievably uh, impressive research accomplishments that have in fact influenced the field. So focus on what you've already accomplished. Don't call yourself young or early career. And another tip Isaiah is that it doesn't matter whether you're the first author of a paper or whether you're the fourth author of a paper. You get the same credit for it under the law. You should never say you're working as part of a team yes. in a reference letter to immigration. You're illegally allowed to take credit for your research, no matter what author you are, no matter how you contributed. So your letters want to always say, doctor so-and-so discovered this, discovered that. Don't call yourself part of a team.
1: Thank you for saying. I, uh, finally, on the record, legal advice confirming that you do not need to, to hedge. You don't have to say I was part of a team for for your grants too or your papers. So that's very important. I want to let's make team. Let's make sure we get that clip and play it a thousand times in the group. Uh, so, what about providing evidence that does not matter or doesn't even qualify?
4: Here, sure, Isaiah. So this is a common mistake I make. People give membership that don't qualify, like being a member of Sigma Chi. You know, there's case law that says that doesn't qualify. If you received a travel award or a young researcher award, there's law that says they don't qualify. So don't present a case to immigration saying you meet the award category because you received a travel award from this conference because it's gonna make you look like you're stretching and like you're not qualified. So you have to know the law and abide by it. Don't, you know, try and make, something that that you're not allowed to do
1: so what kind of supporting evidence do you want to have because in some cases failing to provide supporting evidence for the influence of your work is going to be detrimental
4: so you want to go beyond just the reference letters that are talking about your career accomplishments we like to to say we like three sets of letters when we're preparing a case set number one is independent reference letters from people who have never worked or gone to school where you have worked or gone to school. Set number two is supervisor letters. There's a place for them, but they're not that important because immigration knows your supervisors are going to say nice things about you. Then there's what I call supplemental letters and supporting supplemental evidence. Has your work been used by a company that could write a letter on your behalf? Is there a government agency that's interested in your work? Is there a patent that has been commercialized? Have you done peer review for journals where they can talk about why they selected you to do peer review? Have you been selected to do an oral presentation? So it's this supporting evidence beyond just the general letters that is really key to immigration. They want to objectively see that you have influenced your field. And you know, a mistake that I, make, that I see people make is they only give the letters and they don't go beyond because it's a, it's a lot of extra effort to do these smaller letters and to gather these evidence. But that extra effort could make the difference in you getting a green card or not. And just two more
1: questions. This one's kind of a two part question. So applying in the wrong category and prematurely filing for an I-485 green card application.
4: Sure. So I mentioned earlier, there's three categories where you can apply for a green card without going through the labor certification, which, you know, that involves showing lack of U.S. worker availability. But everyone listening right now wants to try and apply for a green card based on their own accomplishments. There's the EB-1A Extraordinary Ability Alien category. There's the EB-1B Outstanding Professors and Researcher category. And then there's the EB-2 NIW category. If you're not from China or India, then the EB2 NIW is the only category you should be considering applying for because it's easier than EB1A and there's a wait right now of a year and a half to get the green card in EB1A. So if you're not from China or India, the wrong category is EB1A or EB1B. Then if you are from China or India, but you're really not qualified for EB1A, then you have to think about in NIW, because even though it's a longer wait, for China right now, it's not that much longer. There's a two and a half year wait for EB1A and a uh, three and a half year wait for NIW. So the weight's not that much different in China. And from India, there's the two and a half year wait in EB1A and nine and a half years in NIW. I don't want you to wait nine and a half years to get your green card any more than you do. But you have to be realistic about your credentials. And you'll make a mistake if you stretch for the EB1A too early rather than filing the NIW, getting that approved so you know you'll eventually get your green card, and then filing for the EB1A when the time is right. With regard to the 485, if you're in F1 or J1 status you should really not file the 45 unless and until you have an approved I-140 petition with the current priority date. The exception to that is if you're not from China or India and it's the only way for you to keep in legal status if you're in F-1 or J. But a, a mistake I see people make a lot, Isaiah, but don't you know get the proper legal advice is they're in F or J status and they file the 45 with the i-140 and sometimes they put all their eggs in one basket and then if their case is denied they're out of status if you're in h-1b that's called a dual intent visa so it's okay to file the 45 with the i-140 if your date is current so perfect be very careful about those issues
1: yeah and just again it's (laughs) Uh, Brian's knowledge uh, you can all tell is uh, phenomenal here Uh, and you're just this you're getting thousands of dollars of advice here in in a very short amount of time and and it, it takes me to my last question you know what if I'm a PhD and I'm like I can go learn this on my own I don't need to listen to a lawyer I'm just gonna do what I think is right and what I do in academia so a why should everybody be listening to you right now including the people who are in our international PhD community and then why is it important to have a lawyer actually fill out your paperwork instead of trying to figure it out yourself? Sure.
4: So, you know, this, the immigration officer reading your case is a layperson. I am a layperson. I could look at everybody's CV and not understand half of the scientific terms on there because you all live in a world where you, where you talk to each other and, you know, people don't understand that that aren't scientists. And when you're conveying your case to immigration, you have to make it really, really simple. So whether you use me or another lawyer, it's a good idea to have a lawyer. And it's also a good idea to listen to your lawyer. I always joke with people, if you were getting surgery from a doctor, you would not tell the doctor how to perform the surgery. You would rely on the doctor's expertise to do the surgery because the doctor's done the surgery a gazillion times, and they know what they're doing. And that's the same thing with me. I filed so many cases in my career. I've been doing this almost 25 years. I know how to prepare a case to immigration, And I know when you're too early. I know when you're too late. I know which category you should apply in. And a lot of times people consult me and then they go and do it on their own. And they come back to me and they say, Brian, I wish I would have... so, you know, yeah. that's the thing. Make sure that you take good legal advice.
1: Yeah, and I agree. And and we've had uh, many associates and many PhDs use Brian and his firm for, for both that high-level advice once they get to the stage of being ready to apply, get sponsored, et cetera, and prepare the paperwork. And the reviews have been amazing. We are very selective with our strategic partnerships here. Um, again, what I love about, brian and his firm it's getson and shots which i'm showing here is it's specific right just like cheeky scientists we are specifically for phds who want to work in industry what brian has done well here is he's built the firm around specifically helping phds researchers get visas green cards Um, and he actually knows what he's doing when it comes to um, online uh, technology the way things work today right so you go to a lot of legal sites you can't even navigate here it's very simple you can call this number at the top You can email them directly, and they will get back to you quickly, or you can just click this button here and and schedule a a free call. Um, I do highly recommend if you need to get a visa or a green card, you've been trying to figure it out, you think you know what you're doing, you don't. Get on the International PhD Community Waitlist. We are opening up enrollment. Uh, Brian is in the private group. We do videos consistently with him. He answers questions. Uh, live with all of you, and only the international PhD community members get access to that. So, we'll put in the link for the waitlist page here. We'll also put in the link for uh, Brian and shots. Uh, it's just researcher. If you're listening by audio, it's researchergreencard.com. Researchergreencard.com. And you can just email info at com as well. So, thank you very much for your time, Brian. Great to see you as always.
4: Thank you, Isaiah. Bye bye.
1: Bye. All right, so this takes us to the end of our public sh- live stream. So if you're watching us on Facebook and you want to learn more about uh, Cheeky Scientist and the association that we refer to quite a bit, you can go to PhDsGetHired.com. You go this to takes PhD. us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.
3: Bum, bum, Let's <laughs> go.